And I'm Casey Dorn. And you are listening to the first episode of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast. We're intending this to be a quarterly, moderated panel discussion show about geek culture. I like to call it the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. Uh, The format that we intend for this show will be that Casey and I will be joined by two panelists, one of whom uh, does not like the topic at hand or is maybe just not a fan. A Pat Buchanan for one and an Eleanor Clift for the other, right? Precisely. And uh, we are going to dig deep and get to the bottom of some of uh, Geekdom's favorite and most infamous topics, directors, television shows, science fiction franchises. And other sacred cows. Exactly. We plan to tip those cows. (laughs) So we are going to ask our panelists if they can come up with the high point and low point of the various topics that we're going to have thrown at us. And I think we're going to have some really interesting answers. Uh, our first episode was recorded back in September of 2012. I hope you'll be gentle. Uh, this is my first attempt at editing audio. And uh, Chris Walker, who joined us over Skype, didn't exactly have the best audio quality, and we re-recorded some of his material. I hope you enjoy it. In between our quarterly episodes, four times a year, we will be answering listener feedback and giving you a heads up on upcoming panel discussions so that we can add your questions to the topics at hand. And it should be fantastic. With that in mind, please enjoy our panel of Radio versus the Martians. Let's go. there's anyone who hasn't heard of Star Trek. Created by Gene Roddenberry in 1966 to be a wagon train to the stars, it ran for three seasons and became a cult phenomenon that you can't compare to anything else. It's been said that there's a Star Trek convention somewhere in the world every day. And it's not like I'm talking about a convention for a medium like comic books or even an entire genre like science fiction. We're talking about conventions for a single science fiction franchise that spans six TV shows, 11 movies, video games, novels, toys, a Vegas theme attraction that lasted a decade, and even its own language. But when these conventions started, all they had there were 66 episodes of a TV show that had been off the air for four years. From Vulcan neck pinches, the Kirk fight music, beat me up, Scotty, Klingons, It's undeniably put a stamp on pop culture that even non-fans, non-geeks are aware of. So the the question is, how the hell did Star Trek get so damn big? Uh, To help me answer that, I am joined by my inaugural panel. Christopher Walker is here from the Backroom Comics Podcast and Walker's World video blog. Joining us over Skype. How's it going, Chris? Hello. Yeah, it's going pretty well so far. All right. And from the Transmit Receive Podcast, Casey Doran. How's it going, Mike? And joining me, my compadre from Ask an Atheist, Sam Mulvey. So do I just sort of grr and act like I hate everything here? Or? I, that is your job. <laughs> so, guys, there are thousands of science fiction television shows out there. 
and dozens of them that came out of the 60s at the same time as Star Trek. Why did Star Trek become a behemoth instead of one of these other shows? Positive, uh, I don't know, a utopian ideal, uh, a look at the future of an integrated future of a future that had justice where English-speaking white people were still on top of their game, um, and one that uh, addressed the uh, addresses the social issues of the time. It was, just, you know, just like good science fiction. It's about ideas, and that show was about ideas, uh, and it just happened to play uh, to the uh, post-1950s utopianism about technology. Do you remember those uh, the OJ trials when they would take the same photos but put different filters over them to make them happier or meaner? Now take everything that uh, Casey just said and give it one of those really dark photo filters, <laughs> and that's essentially what I would say. So like the bad OJ cover on yeah, Time Magazine? exactly. Where they made him blacker? Is that what you mean? <laughs> oh, Sorry. yeah. I don't know. Uh, what do you got, Chris? Well, I think it really resonated with the culture of the time. There was quite a bit of fear and uh, and terror at the time in the world with uh, with the Cold War raging. But uh, well, and there was a depressing dystopian feel to the world. And, and Roddenberry saw a bright, uh, shiny, hopeful future where a lot of our differences as uh, citizens of the Earth would be put put aside for the greater good. Uh, you know, he had to, of course, uh, invent alien bad guys for us uh, forward-thinking humans to fight. But uh, that was his vision at the time that we could all as humans just uh, just get along yeah that that was a really interesting thing with the show is it it broke down some barriers it actually had a, a multiracial cast which i don't think you saw a lot of in the 60s well well yeah no uh, up to that time you, you didn't have a lot of multiracialism on tv you know especially characters of asian descent or african-american descent were were relegated to servile roles uh, they were cooks or they were housekeepers and such so so it was a significant maneuver and and it really represented something that roddenberry wanted to get across as well as he could uh, uh, within the constraints of 1960s television, uh, putting people in those roles like Nichelle Nichols and, and George Takei, and then not only making them ranking officers with vitally important positions on the ship, but also giving them a lot of screen time and, and making them central to several plots. It was a big deal. This is going to sound a little ridiculous, but it was a very, I, I mean... I have to admit that at this point, my opinion of Star Trek has actually changed a little bit since you booked me for this panel. But the the sort of it was sort of that was quick. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Um, well, actually, no. My my opinion for the uh, uh, of the original series has always been relatively high. If you want to hear the via, you know, the, if you want me to spew bile, let's talk next gen. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, for the original series, it was always a, it was always sort of a careening, passive play at being uh, at being controversial or getting people to think about things. Is that I think the way they approached the issues that were plaguing or the issues that were getting solved in the 1960s or they were attempting to solve in the 1960s, they would sort of do this careening drive-by thing at it. As I think, um, I actually think in some ways uh, the Twilight Zone did a better job because they would generally hit a subject head on. Where uh, other, you know, except for a couple episodes like the the bilaterally, uh, right? The Frank Gorshin played the. Exactly. I can't remember the name of the race, but yeah, it was the the racial issue. They played it out in a way that was 
patently we're talking about black and white people because we're right. talking about black and white people. Yeah, and yeah. the one and the one time they they you know they would go at it directly, you would have one episode like that, and then you would have that other episode with the Yang and the Calm and the <laughs> on the on the fake future America right. thing where it was basically <laughs> Star Trek Red Dawn. Yes. Come on. Yeah. So what was the deal with that planet? That was I actually saw that one on television just a couple days ago. It's really odd uh, that you brought that one that, up. That's but. actually that was actually their uh, apologetic for uh, American imperialism because at the end, uh, Kirk makes a speech about you know. It's just like the brush wars of Asia. Um, you know, he's, he, and Kirk in the end is saying, well, how can we justify giving weapons to the to the comms or whatever they are? And he's like, it's just like the brush wars in 20th century. You have to arm both sides. That was about, that was about America arming Vietnam. Because he says in the end, we have no choice but to arm both sides. So obviously it, not. We it, there was another choice. It's which, inherently a pro-Vietnam thing, then. Of course. Well, it's a pro-America show, and it's about because uh, you know, that's controversial. Yeah, it's it's about cowboys. Because I mean, they're cowboys that run in, and you know, they're like the MythBusters in space. I think you said they're cowboys that run in, solve the problems, and then they're away. But fo- but they've got a, a storytelling device, which is being in space and going to planets. That's, I, that makes it mo- much easier much easier to do commentary than a western. I, I, the, the thing in there is though okay racism is bad and they're, they're sort of coy about it they do it in sort of a glancing sort of way uh, when they say that racism is bad they do it in the they do it in sort of a passive sort of way where they they create this uh, this fake clearly ridiculous looking race war and then when they want to talk about how it's okay to go you know to invade another country and kill a bunch of people they basically create space america they don't they don't play coy it's not i this show was not as controversial as people like to think it was i mean you know there's a lot of there's a lot of cases of people going oh star trek is weird more hay was made about the short skirts of the uniforms than was ever made about uh any actual social policies that they tried to do in the show that sounds like a gauntlet falling what do you guys say chris i don't know well one of the things you touched on uh, that they that they did make a lot of noise about the scandalous costuming and the short skirts you know how the regular cast members dealt with one another but 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 the larger social and uh, and political issues that that Roddenberry was trying to expose and get people to think about and and be more aware of uh, those were glossed over and and you know media control being what it was at the time you couldn't just say, uh, hey, we've landed on the planet Vietnam 4. Uh, let us show you what's wrong here. Uh, <laughs> you, you had to try to be more subtle about it and hide it uh, under a veneer of, uh, of television. And and I think that, that people were able to convince themselves that it was just light science fiction fair and that uh, nothing so controversial could possibly be coming out of this this show with with rubber monsters and, and styrofoam rocks falling everywhere it, it it's really only in retrospect that we look back uh, on the show and say aha that's what he was talking about all along and and i think people i think people who did get it at the time uh, these were not your uh, you know like political proponents or whatever and it, it, it and you couldn't exactly get up in front of Congress and say, well, as Star Trek shows, it's uh, obviously a bad idea for us to be in <laughs> Vietnam arming the rebels. Uh, I mean, look what happened to the Yangs, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think you kind of touch on it there. I mean, personally, is is I, I don't really... I, 
I don't think Roddenberry was the problem in this case. Is is you're you're trying to get the show on the air, and if you're in if you're going to do a show where we're going to land on the planet Vietnam Four, the the network is going. I love that by the way. The, <laughs> the network is going to come down on you hard, and I get that. And, and I oh, and I, they did, and they did honestly. I yeah. mean, I think you know we did a we did one of the Ask an Atheist shows. I was talking about the original Star Trek and the fact that uh, um, Gene Roddenberry's universe was explicitly a universe where people in the Federation were were atheists. Yeah. Um, but of course, they in the original show, you know, they have Kirk saying things like, "No, th- uh, uh, you know, when the Greek gods came back, he was like, no thanks. We have our we have uh, I only believe in one God, or, or we have we have as many as we want, or something like that.' And you know, and then he also. Yeah. We talk about when there's the Nazi planet, you know, and the people, oh, yeah. the Nazi planet have their, the rebels yeah. and the rebels are all believe worshipers of the sun. And at the end, Uhura is like, she means the son of God. <laughs> you know, they're just, I just don't think they, I just don't think they could have done what Gene Roddenberry wanted to. And he didn't until later, until TNG, when it, when it basically is an explicitly uh, anti-religious uh, society that they live in. I, I, and I, I did sort of say that they were making noise about the uniforms. I just want to go on the record and say that stuff is hot. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, super hot. I like how in uh, TNG they dabbled just a bit with, with the with the scant, and even had the men wearing them, and 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 for part of the time, and and it was like, yeah, that was super hot. And then yeah, they dropped it out yeah. in the first season. <laughs> yeah, they had the the skirts they in had the men first wearing ep- skirts. Yes, in the in yeah. the first episode, there was a man wearing a skirt, and they never touched on that ever again. Well, interestingly enough, yeah, you know, like what happened there. Well, Star Trek was known for doing oh, at the time. Of course, the first interracial kiss was with Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner, and, and yeah. uh, um, there was a lot of hullabaloo during Next Generation because at by that point in time, Star Trek was seen as a very progressive show, but that were that would had broken ground before and was breaking ground. And aside from some, uh, I think some serious missteps in the first season of the Next Generation, for example, the utterly racist african tribe planet episode or the next yeah yeah. um uh, they there was pressure through the entire run of that series to do a show where they had openly gay uh crew members on the enterprise and that that got kicked so far down the road that it eventually got turned into the episode about the genderless species that Riker falls in love I with. I just saw that episode. <clears throat> what a piece of junk. So, but uh, so oh. even as progressive as it is, as progressive as Star Trek is, obviously it's pushing the boundaries, but it is not it doesn't it doesn't break the boundaries. It just it's still conservative in that respect. That, that's sort of the thing is is my critique of the original series uh isn't about what the message of Star Trek was and what what Roddenberry was trying to accomplish. It was the it was when Roddenberry had to compromise to reach those goals is the yeah. fact that he had to compromise to get on television and and I respect that I do and that's part of the reason why I say when I'm, my critique of the original series is generally rather light by the time you get to next gen after you've done these ridiculous movies the message of Roddenberry has basically been lost and it, it's except for hmm. here and there it shines through a little bit every now and again but for the most part it's yeah. it's gone I mean I, I can actually disagree with you on this point uh, because I I feel like the TNG, especially as encompassed by the character of Picard, represents a complete 180 when it comes to the idea. What what is Star Trek's uh, general uh, message about ethics, and more specifically about interrelations between peoples? And it's embodied in the ethics of John Luke Picard, who is, in every instance, the person who is the last one to want to use force. Who, when the crystalline entity comes and is like. 
tearing whole planets apart and killing people he's saying we're not necessarily going to kill it if we can't if we can help it shall we look at picard's character arc though i mean really yeah well i mean the movies of course (laughs) you you can you need only look at the red letter media uh to talk about the movies to say that they make him into a murderous psychopath by the end of the movies but yeah i mean i i would say uh picard does everything that he he has to try to uh, not break the prime directive, although he does it all the time, and to try to say, well, we we won't shoot first and ask questions later. We'll ask questions first, and then shoot. well, then we'll shoot these yeah. people, and then we'll shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so here's here's the big question here. Now, be all three of you guys be utterly honest. How well has Star Trek aged? Like the original? Ah. Oh, take it as you may. Oh. How how does it age? Go ahead, Chris. Well, as a as a phenomenon, I think the show has uh, aged. Uh, Star Trek has aged very well, uh, I, and I know I'm alone. Uh, well, pretty well alone amongst Trekkies when I say that the shows got better, uh, progressively better as they went along, culminating in the Scott Bakula's Enterprise. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I can uh, I can I can hear the derision now, but um, I, I loved Enterprise. It felt like a solid group of uh, of cast members and, and and the writing team especially. I mean, it did take them two seasons for them to find their stride. But if you look at any of the other shows, that's exactly what happened. Except the, with the exception of original series, you had a young group of writers, a new group of writers who were based in a big science fiction background, but they didn't have the feel for the characters or what the show meant or the themes or anything like that. Next Generation, you look at Voyager, you look at DCS9, all those, those those shows. First few seasons, laughable. Oh my god. It, it was just ridiculous. The, the group of actors who were new with each other and didn't know their characters or how they would really interact. Um, a, a new writing team. Uh, and a writing team sometimes went from show to show who didn't know what the idea was for what they were trying to build, what stories they were trying to tell. You're talking about the original original series, Because you were Chris? almost uh, breaking new ground. Uh, you, you benefited from uh, not having a lot of history or, or genre-specific cliches to build on. You had uh, writers who were just science fiction authors. Uh, they didn't have other shows to reference. They were just... They, were, they weren't TV writers. They were just writing good sci-fi, you know? Indeed. Next Generation, and you have a group of writers who are then uh, television writers who are then trying to build on what was already a cult phenomenon and, and, and make something new and fresh with this universe and exciting and fun. And, and, and there were a lot of missteps along the way, but, but once you got to that third season, uh, you, you had had time to realize what worked and what didn't work and the, the interrelations among the characters on the show, uh, and, and you had a great cohesive group. Uh, not only among the writers, but between them and the actors and the producers. And, and, and you could then go on to make what would become fantastic television. And I think it took those first two seasons to get out of the way before we could, before we could hit that stride. And, and, and I feel like that is exactly the case with every show after the original series. And, 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 and Enterprise, as good as it was, was really, really getting over that hump. And right then they canceled it. Okay. I, I feel... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you just made my argument for me. He said he mentioned Voyager and Enterprise. I'm basically done. I mean, um, 
I, oh, and yeah, I, Deep Space Nine's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he really, I mean, he touched on it, is, is I think there's so many dimensions to how well Star Trek has aged. For one thing, the, the kitsch of Star Trek, the, the incredibly hokey effects, the rubber suits, the, uh, the styrofoam scientific equipment, that's part of American culture now. You, you bring that stuff out, Everybody knows what you're talking about. That is they're, that is American. They're redoing culture those special now. effects now. They're it, they're erasing them out of history. So yeah, are just, they? Yeah. Well, I mean the the HD remasters of the original series. They redid at least all of the all of the exterior the space special effects. That is possibly one of the most ridiculous things I have ever heard. They should leave it. It's awesome. Yeah. But go on. Um, I'm sorry. And then uh, in another way. Uh, and I think because of that, Star Trek uh, has aged incredibly well because it has become part of its Americana. It's it's a, a clearly American icon. If you want to talk about how well it's aged as storytelling, the transition from science fiction writers to television writers was terrible. Uh, let's talk about RDM. I'll agree there. Yeah. Uh, you know, he had Battlestar Galactica in him when he was working on Star Trek. Are you kidding me? What happened? Why didn't why why weren't we seeing this in Star Trek? Because honestly, um, the original Battlestar Galactica was terrible. I mean, right. so yeah, he had to go to a, yeah he had to go to a new um, he had to go to a new franchise to do something different. And I mean, he basically took Hill Street Blues, dusted it off, and painted robots on it. But uh, <laughs> but that's that, that's a formula that works. It was fantastic. Um, but it just it didn't. It was falling apart by the time. I mean, you wanted the high point, low point thing, and this this will tie directly into that. Um, it, it's just by the time they they uh, they uh, were getting to Voyager and getting to Enterprise, it felt like they were just waiting for the paychecks. And I think <laughs> I think at that point, no, they were just keeping their jobs alive, right? And I'm just, same crew. And I'm just like, this is this is not this is not what science fiction is supposed to be. I'm not. We're not expanding anything here this is just this is it stopped being wagon train in space and became one life to live in space mm. and then it died an ignoble death mm. until 2009 and then Abrams dusted it off and said wait there are parts of this that oh, yeah. still work I will glue this to something and it will be awesome you know so yeah I, well you if you're done Sam you just you made the you laid the, the, the ground right for where I was going to say because uh, you know you can you can look after 2009 2009 was a sea change was was certainly when everything changed and it changed because um they decided paramount decided uh nameless executives at paramount decided that they were going to take the if the uh franchise of star trek was a cadaver um and the only thing that was left was its uh uh its brain stem they cut off everything and pulled out the brainstem and made that into a made that into a movie. Jettisoned everything else except for the way that they looked, the names of the characters, and a little bit about the history that was enough to make a movie where there's lots of people hanging off cliffs, explosions, and plots that don't make any sense. Um, but but as far as take as far as the has how has it aged well? I would say obviously it's aged really well because they're still able, able to make movies out of it that make over two hundred million dollars at the box office. So as far the only proof that Paramount Studio cares about it's aged well enough that it can keep going. Where is Roddenberry's positivism in the two thousand nine movie? The, n- nowhere. But that's why I, that's that's the reason why I think it's a betrayal of uh, it's a betrayal of the ideas that made a Star Trek different than another sci-fi show from the 60s made it different from Lost in Space right. because there was a, there was a point to the characters and the characters were pointing to a future where people might actually think oh we should try to shoot for this you know yeah, yeah. a show that m- made whole generations of people become scientists and engineers and mathematicians because yeah. 
that's how exciting those were. I'm here to talk about how much I don't like Star Trek, and I'm not even immune to that. <laughs> I'm just seriously, Scotty's, you know, Scotty definitely had an impression on me as a character. Right. Actually, um, I know that uh, James Doohan has actually said this in interviews that uh, he has been approached at conventions by a number of people who became engineers because of Scotty. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So we're we're getting into this um, discussion of the reboot, but. We talked a bit about what killed Star Trek, and I think it's time to pull up the curtain and look at the body and try to figure <laughs> out what, what killed this thing. What killed Star Trek? Was it, was it Voyager? Was it uh, Enterprise? What happened? Well, uh, I would say what ended up killing Star Trek was, for reason we said before, they were carrying on uh, shows that were basically there to keep the writers and you know cinematographers and directors um, alive for a decade after they had actually done good work after they had been doing it over and over and over and over again. Um, it also ran out of steam because I think that uh, as interesting of the idea of making Enterprise as a new series, prequels always have the prequel problem. There's rarely rarely ever does a prequel do something that's so amazing because, and this is a reason why the writers of the new Star Trek movie did what they did, um, when you have a, make a prequel and everyone who's watching knows what's going to happen in the future, you have very little danger in the universe because you know what's going to happen. Right. They did kind of try to address that with that weird time. That's, I mean, that's it's the cheapest the, thing. The temporal Cold War, you mean? The, the, the cheapest thing that Star yeah. Trek does. The cheapest, it's the cheapest thing ever is, uh, we're in a hall, we don't know how to get out. Time travel! Yeah! <laughs> time travel will save us all! The, 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 the century 9,000 uh, Federation's gonna come in and save our butts. Well, God, it's so it got so boring. There was, if you remember yeah. the Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a uh, a character because Itchy and Scratchy's ratings are going down. The the marketing executives decide that they're gonna add a new character whose name is Poochie the Rockin' yeah. Dog, and uh, Homer becomes yeah. the voice. I don't remember why he becomes the voice, but uh, basically the only their criterion for what Poochie was is bigger, louder, with time travel. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about series that are shambling yes. zombies, by the way. <laughs> now that 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 ends up being the issue with that's what I, what I think what made uh, Star Trek 2009 very weak because it was an exemplifies bigger, louder with time travel because they thought the audience they thought they couldn't carry an audience unless they did bigger, louder, and with time travel. And such is the same thing with Enterprise. The idea was well, we can't can't make it interesting enough, so let's inject a time travel plot through the whole thing that didn't even really need to happen. Although there was, there was seeing a future Enterprise, there was like the Enterprise G or something in there. That was pretty cool, uh, I suppose. Oh, Enterprise Jank. J. Thanks, Chris. So, <laughs> the fact that I can correct you on that is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, yes, I believe if you check the uh, episode uh, 327, uh, that would be the J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and you're really right. <laughs> that that is one well that the Star Trek writers uh, spend a lot of time going back to over and over uh, this uh, this time travel aspect, uh, especially in 2009. But but it felt like in, in in this case it was instrumental to what they wanted to do, which which was revive the original crew, and they needed a divergent uh, plot line, a divergent story point to uh, to indicate to the audience that uh, this this would not simply be a retelling of the original stories. And, and because there were things that J.J. Abrams uh, wanted to do uh, that he simply could not have done had he stayed strictly within the uh, within the Star Trek canon. And 
and I think in this case, especially, it, it worked. Uh, it worked really well, and it, they made a great movie, even with the star time travel. One of the things that I really give them credit for in the uh, 2009 movie is they is that you cannot turn your back on a fandom like the Star Trek fandom. You can't just say, okay, everything no. you care about is gone. And they actually came up with a universe... They, they, the reason they did the time travel thing is, one, there's a lot of time travel in Star Trek. You can't do a ha-ha. It's, it's a, I mean, the first the 2009 movie was a, basically a pastiche of all of the themes in Star Trek. So you're going to have some, some time yeah. travel in it. The other thing is, is that it'll, using this whole time travel thing and having Leonard Nimoy show up, spoilers, um, <laughs> no! is, is uh, it, allowed, it allowed them to reboot the series in a way that allowed the original shows to continue on their way and or, you know to continue yeah. being a thing. And I think that was that was it okay is it is it cheap storytelling yeah but it's incredibly generous to the fans of star trek and i think that is re- i think i think that's really nice can, can i ask a question for people who uh, in, in this panel right now did star trek 2009 aside from referencing prime prime spock uh leonard nimoy spock and that timeline were there any overt references to anything that occurred in the original timeline not from the T, not from the TOS series. Anything from TNG, Enterprise, um, TNG, Enterprise, DS9, or Voyager. Any references, even even art department references. No, I'm not asking. I'm not asking if it was referenced from something from TOS. I'm ref- ref- seeing if uh-huh. anything in the movie referenced anything that wasn't from TN- TOS. So, oh, oh, uh, the Catrick arc would have probably have been the only thing that I know of, and that's but that's from animated series. So the point here I'm trying yeah. to make was is I actually think that the uh, the 2009 the script. The production and the whole thing, in, including the special effects, was a, and this includes this was with uh, the inclusion of R two D two in the special effects of the of the uh, the ship graveyard that they warp into is the way to expunge everything that is not t- t- TOS from Star Trek. Good. <laughs> I, I you know what? I think there is one offhanded reference to Cardassians. If you listen to some of the uh, some of the the, the, uh, the chatter that uh, we're going through at one there's one mention of I think the Cardassians, honestly, and that. And I've seen the movie probably eight times, and I don't and I don't even remember it's that. The, it's the name of a beer, Cardassian like ale or something. <laughs> Cardassian like classic. Yeah. I think Uhura actually <laughs> orders it. Uh, maybe they said Kardashians, but uh, I'm not sure. That's, I really uh, don't want that family to last into the 23rd hey, century. Hey. <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder: Did they they just go off and colonize a planet somewhere, and uh, and then evolution over time uh, developed those ridges and the spoonheads? I don't know. I assume what's going to happen. Uh, watch out, Kim. I'm talking to you. <laughs> Start paying attention to the side of their necks more. See yeah. the beginning of that. The what, ridges. So what I think killed Star Trek is what I what I talk. Well, first off, um, I think it got really derivative because yeah. it started being of television. Course. The the show that um, and this is where where I lay down I lay down my gauntlet. Like this this is why are you guys watching Star Trek when this other thing was happening? Um, 
is everybody likes to talk about when I talk about what I like in science fiction and what I want to see in science fiction, the kind of things I like seeing challenged in Deep science space fiction. Deep Space Mesopotamia Nine. Deep. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, you mean generic Babylon Five, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Just generic Babylon Five in the non in the you know in the generic easy to afford uh, pre- prescription format. Yeah. Okay, I mean, okay, Babylon Five has its flaws. I mean, it's got ninety episodes, which are basically Love Boat in space, but. Um, it, 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 what, I mean, JMS approached, uh, you know, Paramount saying, I want to do Babylon 5 as a Trek series. They said no. He took it to another station. Suddenly there's DS9. I think that's, uh, yeah. certainly that's a coincidence. Yeah. That, there, there, there can't be, <laughs> there's no there there. A pure coincidence. Yeah. There's, I don't see any similarities, any references at all. It's just <laughs> yeah, a in, in space the, station with a number on it. That even in the new phase of Star Trek, everything after the original series, okay, I, I kind of think of the animated series as like the original series plus plus. Um, but everything after that, next gen on, was incredibly derivative, including the stuff that everybody says was dark at, or had dark elements to it or had a very complex storyline and a story arc and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even that part was kind of technically derivative because they're ripping on a show that was going on at the same time, the show that I was watching. So uh, this is actually one of the things that I actually have a problem with with the first couple seasons of Enterprise because it seemed to be a bit schizophrenic. That on one hand, they wanted to pull these things from the Next Generation universe to try to keep fans in. Like, we have to give them something familiar. We have to give them something familiar. So they had what they I would call plausible deniability episodes right where right. they would encounter something like say the ferengi or the borg yeah. you know alien right. races that they're not going to meet oh, and they would God, and they, they would <laughs> run into them and and they would encounter them and then they would never find out what their name was and they would just take off they're like oh that was weird yeah. right before you um, answer that can we yeah. pour one out for scott bacula because if anybody deserved to be a star trek captain yeah, he was great. Okay. I, I'll I give him. He, he was really good in that role. I love the idea that he was basically playing John Wayne. He he was. He was going no. back to the the Kirk thing, and they were drawing a lot of stuff from the original series. That's why they had like Andorians and stuff coming back. Right. Right. Um, but at the same time, they were trying to pull all this re- uh, recognizable <clears throat> TNG stuff. And then on the other hand, for the first two seasons of the show, it was just called Enterprise. It didn't have Star Trek on it until like season three. Yeah. So was the studio like afraid of the Star Trek name were they saying nobody's going to check it out only the hardcore fans are I mean it was clearly Star Trek so I mean they had they had a Vulcan on the ship it was called the Enterprise right what why did they not call it Star Trek Enterprise right from the beginning they they wanted it to be uh, new again and and not derivative and they they wanted it to be enterprising and I mean everyone knew it was Star Trek I mean it was the Enterprise uh, they had uh, Vulcans and warp drive and, and no no one was going to say hey that's not Star Trek uh, but but they didn't want it to be called out in that way uh, they wanted to do what J J Abrams succeeded in doing which was to relaunch things to to start fresh so they they didn't want it to have that Star Trek name on it and and get the eye rolls from non-Trekkies. They wanted to appeal to a broader audience. Uh, everything they were doing uh, with the show was designed to stand apart from the other shows. Uh, well, of course, until they started trying to increase their Trekkie audience by bringing in the Borg and the Ferengi and the, the Mirror Universe, you know. But uh, but but that was the idea uh, from from dropping the Star Trek from the title and and just just calling it Enterprise. They they wanted to stand apart. 
Well, I, I think you and I have discussed this before, Mike, in that uh, you need only look at um, the John Carter movie that came out last year. Uh, you know, they, they, it, the script was called John Carter, John Carter of Mars, and that was the title of one of the Burroughs books. Um, the <clears throat> the reason why it became John Carter is because one, um, women don't go see movies that have the names of planets in the title. Two, um, <laughs> Mars needs moms was a box office disaster, and so whenever there's a box office disaster, executives run away as fast as possible from anything that looks or sounds like it, so they had to take the word Mars off That's of it. That's just a really great mashup, though. John <laughs> Carter of Mars needs moms. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I, I think that I think that could go a, a long way to explain uh, uh, this, the removal of Star Trek, is maybe they were, th- executives were thinking, Star Trek colon something something would there are a few people that would be like, oh, no, God, Star Trek. If they just had Enterprise, yeah. maybe people wouldn't be so thrown off by the... I mean, I, and I I, sub, I submit that's also why they had the awful uh, Faith of the Heart theme song yeah. for Enterprise, because they wanted to make it different. That's they the thing I, I have stab to... stab me in the heart. <laughs> 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 that's the thing that I actually well, really uh, wonder about, is that... If you want a clean start, don't you do exactly what J.J. Uh, Abrams did? Like you said, Casey, you rip the brainstem out and you build a new body around it right. with the stuff that's familiar. You know, the I mean, that movie was basically a nostalgic like uh, demo reel for Star Trek. That you had the uh, I'm a doctor, not a physicist. You had the neck yeah. pinch. You had Kirk sleeping <laughs> right. with a green chick. You you hit almost. Ev- I, I'm giving all she's got, Captain. I mean, they they hit every single <laughs> note that everyone, even people who are not nerds, know about Star Trek. It's like, oh, okay, they have to get the warp ship, you know, hit warp and get away from some sort of disaster just in the nick of time. Um, isn't that an easier way to do it than with Enterprise? Because again, like you said, the prequel problem is that you're kind of caught up in all this continuity. Do you? Had Star Trek gotten so weighed down by continuity that we needed an absolute clean break? Uh, we did if you uh, we didn't if you wanted to keep going uh, if you wanted to project into the future. We did if you wanted to go to the past and for, for, for the, uh, those exact same reasons. You know, like no, I think I reversed that. You didn't need it needed if you were willing to go in the future with the with the current storyline, but you did need it if you wanted to go into the past, and that was the lesson that they painfully learned. That's why one of the most popular episodes of Enterprise was when they uh, had time travel alternate universe where they went back and uh, the crew were all uh, manning the crew of the original Enterprise, and they had like the Tholians and stuff. The most popular episode was one where they um, basically just did a straight rip. Oh, the Mirror Universe episode? The Mirror Universe episode, yeah. That actually was a real... That's the thing is, I think Enterprise is one of those shows that didn't find its footing until it got a new writer in the last... Was it the... I don't know if it, Chris, was it last two seasons or was it the last season that they finally started turning it around? Well, uh, well, season three was the big overarching uh, Zindi story. Uh, uh, Zindi arc, right. So when you got into the fourth season, they really started doing that uh, doing that thing where every other episode was a was a two parter or even a three parter, and, and and they started making a lot of references, a lot more references to uh, to specific things in the original series. Uh, you had uh, you had Khan and, and the augments and uh, in a mirror darkly, which which agreed is excellent. In fact, my uh, single favorite pair of episodes in uh, in the mirror universe. But but uh, you know they put the Gorn in there and Antholians and uh, and there are a lot of things that are specific references to uh, to events and uh, episodes from the original series. 
Right. So we have this kind of, I think there might be a possible disconnect here, that on one hand you have uh, the studio guys, and then you have the guys who want to do something creatively with Star Trek, you know, and the fans, and they're on that side. When you have 40-something years of fandom and this continuity that you've built up, and you've got all these novels, and you've got all this expanded universe stuff and video games, and it has uh, Shatner and... uh, uh, Patrick Stewart's face is all over it. <laughs> How do you convince a studio that you want to basically junk a lot of that and go with entirely new actors to try to win over new fans? Is there that fear from the studio that you need to put Nimoy in there to put his stamp of approval on it or you're going to get this huge exodus of people? I, I think maybe people thought that Nimoy was the character that wasn't corrupted by... I mean, because William Shatner reinvented his career. Um, everybody else had gone on to weird things. George Takei hadn't reinvented himself as 100% awesome yet. Um, and But <laughs> Nimoy was still, you know, was still he was still Spock. Spock is one of the most recognizable characters in Star Trek. And I think they needed... In American culture, actually. In American culture, I'll yeah. even go. Uh, they really needed somebody to, to sort of bring it. I, I think they did need to, need to bring it to the... Uh, they needed something for the transition from the original continuity to the new continuity. But you're you're asking the, the question about you know uh, what was your question? It was uh, it's uh, whether you've built up this entire franchise that's based on this old continuity that's con- consistently grow. Do you want to give fans the impression that you're junking that and essentially losing that that safe money that you've had for forty uh, years? I, I, I mean, I don't for, think they cared about the fans. I think that, that I mean, question really. forgets the the fact that we're looking that Star Trek was a salmon that had already spawned. It was this yeah. zombie fish that had parts of it that were alive and parts of it that were dead and wasn't really going to do anything worthwhile until it kicked off and became fertilizer for the next round of television. I mean, Chris, you you've been a, a hardcore Star Trek fan. What was the fear of, with did you have any fear about the the relaunch about whether they were going to basically junk the rest of classic Trek? Well, no, actually. Uh, I was on board from from the get-go and uh, from the very first time I heard about the new project that uh, that JJ uh, Abrams had uh, had decided to uh, relaunch and uh, and inject new life into what had become uh, exactly as you said, a uh, uh, zombie salmon, yeah. I think it was. Uh, and I was very, very excited about it, as a matter of fact. Uh, I felt like, probably probably like a lot of fans, Trekkies, that is, that I was just eager for um, for something more, something new. I mean, it had been about, what, six years since Enterprise had gone off the air. Uh, something new for me to enjoy. I'd just been rewatching the DVDs. But... Uh, but at the same time, I'd also been a huge J.J. Uh, Abrams fan, you know, uh, from from his work on uh, on many many great uh, science fiction television uh, programs. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, now of uh, Felicity. No, no, I'm kidding. Of course, that's not true at all. I was uh, I was a big <laughs> Alias fan and, and, and Lost and, and all of his work, all of J.J.'s work. But but what I think you hit on the the, the truth of the matter is that. There, there, there did need to be something in there for real hardcores or, or nerdcores like me uh, that just wanted more Star Trek. You, you couldn't completely ignore your Shatners and your Nimoy's, and, and much like having Shatner in the uh, uh, in Generations to kind of pass that torch to the new crew, uh, you needed that uh, that moment in this new movie as well, and you, and you needed to for the fans. And uh, and as you said, you can't uh, you can't just ignore yeah. Trekkies. We are out there. There are literally dozens of us out there. 
it actually ignoring Trekkies because of who I am and, and the fact that I'm in the atheist community and a nerd and as a science fiction fan, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually detrimental to my health if I ignore Trekkies because in the in the circular, it's when I, whenever we're talking about science fiction in at atheism meetups at bars or something like that, and people start talking about Star Trek, even my friends and I go, oh, that kind of you know, and I, I I whip out one of my standard arguments, which you'll be hearing in a moment, um, about Star Trek. Uh, what then happens is usually the biker bar scene in Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, where uh, where they're like, uh, I you know, I say we stab him, yeah. I say we stab him, then we kill him, yeah. And then I go, I say we let him go. No, it's it's <laughs> people want you dead. Uh, humanists and atheists love Star Trek. And, you know, I think there's good reasons for it, but it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's a fanaticism with them, but there's, there's a definite touching something at their core when I suggest that maybe Star Trek is a little bit more derivative than they would like. There, there's a fan base there that, that you can't really compare to anything else. I, and, and Sam is right that it feels kind of like, um, you're, you're touching on something really personal when you attack Star Trek. And, but look at it this way. There was 11 years after the original series was canceled where there was no new Star Trek. Yet during that time, they continued to have conventions for a TV show with only 66 episodes. Yeah. How do you maintain that without yeah. a crazy well, fan the, base? The, the secret has been, and the secret was for the success of the 2009 movie, was that uh, and this is this is in every way that all Hollywood reboots in the last 25 years have, have worked, which is you preserve enough thematically and especially you preserve catchphrases um, so that they can touch uh, touch the buttons necessary. I mean, I think they did care, but I, I said before, I don't think they cared about the Star Trek fans. They obviously cared about them because they knew that they needed to not make such a, to not make such a schlocky pile of crap that um, Star Trek fans would be boycotting it. So what they did was, you know, they have got the red shirt who gets killed, and they've got Scotty saying, I'm giving her all she's got. And they have, um, you know, live long and prosper. They have all, and they have a ship that's called Enterprise, and they have a doctor who quip makes the quips about being a doctor. Um, they have all those things to give you what's recognizable, but they could care less that it looks nothing, that, uh, that the plot, the motif... The mise-en-scene, if you will, looks nothing like Star Trek and it looks more like Star Wars. The like I, the I, the I, I, yes, Enterprise, the I Enterprise, maybe. Um, so uh, uh, they, they care about us because jettisoning the entire fan base that has been growing for 40 years would be the worst move that Paramount could do considering they still want to make nice. money re- reselling remastered um, uh, TNG episodes in, in high definition. So they're, what they're not going to do is they're not going to make enemies out of everyone. But I, I think they only went so far as to push the buttons that people would expect and then just decided to make what would have been Mission Impossible, you know, Mission Impossible in space. This is the thing that I find really, really interesting about it is that there's that fear that all the merchandise are going to be Chris Pine on it or it's going to have Zachary Quinto on it. But if you look at the expanded universe stuff, I mean, I work at a bookstore and it's all still pictures of Shatner, pictures of Spock, you know, as Leonard Nimoy. Uh, We're still making new TNG ones. But the thing I've really noticed is that not only is there more Star Trek expanded universe stuff, it's like this movie has actually created this resurgence for the Spock and Kirk characters, but the new books are not the those those versions of it. They're still creating so much more original series stuff. I think there's a marketing difference there is the kind of people who are going to be into the new Star Trek series aren't going to be the kind of people who are into collector's books. They're going to be the casual fans rather than the hardcore. Yeah, yeah I, I, it's yeah. it's a it's a summer blockbuster movie. It's not 
It's not the same type of movie that Star Trek Four Save the Whales was, you know? It's not something where you needed to love the characters and to um, to love the characters and to care about a deep plot and to tie in ideas uh, on it as well. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think I like it for what it is, but I think I hate it for what it's making Star Trek become. What is it making Star Trek become? Cliffhangers and explosions. Like, how many times does like Kirk... Many times does liter- Kirk, Kirk? It wasn't the 2009 movie that did that. I'm sorry, Please go I ahead. have to disagree with you there. Next Gen did that. Uh, Insurrection... Uh, the 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 one that l- used the Harry Potter font <laughs> that had uh, uh, what was the last Nemesis. one that made like four dollars? Yeah, um, the, the Star Trek was already there. I, I think it was uh, the the reboot was just recognizing that it now that Star Trek is an icon, it's gonna be con- by its very nature. You, conservative. you could have made that argument after First Contact, where First Contact was an exceptionally good action movie. Um, and was uh, I think betrayed some principles of what start what the ethics of Star Trek are to make a good action movie. But I really feel like um, when you have Kirk, he- literally, I'm not, I'm not a man to overuse the word literally, literally hanging off a cliff at least five times because they don't think that the audience can pay attention long enough without the one of the main characters hanging off of a cliff then it's saying we don't care about making a story that are, is about ideas anymore we want to make story that's about things that blow up people shooting and uh we want to be able to do you know beginning middle end uh three act structure and uh get you out get you out the door in, in 100 minutes that's it, it. it's kind of weird that uh, we see this change from uh the hardcore the people who've been doing sci-fi writing for a long time doing star trek when I find it kind of almost ironic that the best Star Trek movie, in my opinion, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was written by somebody who was not a science fiction guy. And directed by someone who didn't know anything about Star Trek. Exactly. The the guy, um, I forget, what was the name of the director of Star Trek, or the writer of Star Trek II? Oh. Um, I'm going to remember this later. And Nicholas gonna... Meyer was the director, but Nicholas I don't Meyer know Nicholas Meyer was a director, that. and he actually was not a sci-fi guy at all. Do you remember no. the name of the, the writer, Chris? Uh, no, I don't actually, and I, I was trying. I was wrecking my brain right now, and then I'm I'm going to wreck uh, IMDb in a second. But but what you had, you're you're exactly right. Uh, you had two people who who cared less about making a science fiction or a Star Trek movie, and, and instead they wanted to just tell a really really good story, and that's that's what made that one so great. Is that is that the approach that prevents it from just becoming fan fiction, where somebody comes into Star Trek as a Star Trek fan? Like Nemesis was written by a fanboy, and he basically just rewrote Star Trek Two, where Star Trek Two is written by somebody who'd never even seen Star Trek, and directed by a guy who was more familiar with Horatio Hornblower, and that was his method for for understanding Star Trek was mm. sort of. Which is why you had the really, really incongru- uh, incongruous uh, photon, photon torpedo. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Is it, does it really? Does he really have to go through that entire process to launch a photon torpedo? You're gonna yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if that's what it is because we we talked earlier about this idea of people who come into the series as science fiction writers, science fiction fans, and putting that into it rather than coming into it as a Star Trek fan trying to write a Star Trek story as a Star Trek fan. And it feels like you need that fresh approach because I think that's where Star Trek was. It had been so. I guess you could say it was so incestuous at the point. They really needed to get rid of uh, Berman and Braga, the two producers that were in charge yeah. of it for like 20 years. Well, okay, here's the deal. And I, I got to, is, is a lot of the, the, the sort of the, what we're talking about here is why 
I don't know how we got here, but when did when did Star Trek become betrayed? Because I, I think everybody here seems to think that Star Trek was betrayed somewhere yes, along the line. when did the revolution betray? And I will tell you, yeah, I will tell you when Trotsky happened. I will tell you when it was when uh, when when did they finally get away from. Uh, uh, from Carl Roddenberry. Uh, is, uh, uh, it was when they decided the Federation... And the thing is, we've been talking about the production of Star Trek. We've been talking about things that were involved in the creation of Star Trek. I'm going to get right into the story of it. Star Trek... Uh, Star Trek basically betrayed itself when... And you might have heard this before. Uh, when the Federation became a benevolent military dictatorship. Yeah. Is that basically is is everybody talks about how great yeah. Picard is and how wonderful he was and how erudite of a person he was and how he was uh uh and and how e- easy it was for him to not use violence and that's a really easy thing to do when you're basically a really nice strong man and I I, I, I would agree I think that for making for real further realizing what Roddenberry had originally wanted wanted in that kind of future it required. Is the, the economics issue always comes up here, which is um, they're constantly talking about how they live in a world where material needs are satisfied and there are, there is basically no money. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure any number of people who are super geek economics could talk about resource based economies, yada, yada, yada. Post scarcity. But uh, uh, post scarcity. But at this, but at a certain point, they just decided that some things were too. Um, were too difficult to achieve. Some things were too hard to achieve, and one of those was describing exactly how you could have a uh, a more democratic society that also had this huge military and that um, and dealt with the problems of differing ideologies and whatnot in Earth. However, I would say that they used it as a placeholder, and the best fiction solves certain problems by just having a placeholder that helps wall off the need to explain certain things. I, I can't, I just cannot go with that. And every single, through, every, all genre fiction does that. And it's, but it goes to the, it, every, it, every genre relies on a device that allows you to suspend disbelief about one particular thing. So you can tell, you can open up, to tell the story. There are easier, there are better ways to do it. If you're going to maintain this idea of the Federation as, uh, an emerging utopia. And it goes down to what I think maybe were, was the best, some of the best stuff was the uh, of the original uh, of the next gen stuff hmm. was was the Borg stuff was the 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 introduction of the Borg as an as an enemy as a believable enemy as an actually frightening enemy yeah. and the fight that they had to do and how that challenged that challenged what the Federation was about I thought that was great and and that that was a high point but I'm watching this episode and I'm watching this episode as a kid and I'm going through it and they just they, they they're flying towards Earth and they're going well we have the Earth under we we have the Earth under total censorship and I'm like how can you do that yeah. how are you possibly and it was just it was a throwaway line as you said as a cheap way to avoid having to turn it into this uh, earth under threat storyline even though it was an earth under threat storyline and I, it was lazy writing that completely betrayed the underlying positivism and humanist message that Roddenberry was trying to create I don't think anyone and, and, ever and, said it but here's the thing I don't think any writers ever they might have made a throwaway, it was a throwaway line, line. Uh, but I don't think any writers ever seriously, and if they did, it never obviously translated to anything on the screen, ever seriously made a an attempt at saying, um, at saying, no, let's try to explain why this happens. And that's why I brought up the economic argument, because no writer ever attempts to do it because it would be too convoluted. And although I would love, I would love to see something like that in a Star Trek series, they're not going to do it because it wouldn't be interesting. Is to there? People. Do you think there is no way they could have done it that didn't that didn't suggest a military dictatorship is it was, was there another way to do it can they just say 
Earth's kind of screwed up right now. I, I can't. I couldn't tell you. I, I okay. Could, I couldn't. I can't. I, I couldn't do it because I'm not that good of a writer. But um, I'm not going to lay the blame of the T- the pantheon of TNG writers because they weren't capable enough of being able to um, lay out a future society wherein all of our inequalities were solved without having to put people in, in my under mind control. I don't think it was a question of capability. Clearly, there were some really capable writers involved with with Next Gen. I'm not saying that. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not. It, this is not a question of talent. There, there is some incredible talent involved with Star Trek. It was just, it wasn't their concern, and I think, and that was because storytelling was their concern. Yeah, they're, I what, mean, they they are writing stories. They're writing forty-five minute stories, and 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 while Gene Roddenberry wanted to have his atheist, uh, money-free, uh, uh, completely multicultural utopia, um, they ran head and they ran headlong into every incarnation of Star Trek. Ran headlong into not being able to do, perfectly describe how that could happen without there being some incredibly gross inequities or losses of civil liberties. I, I, get, I get, I get that. I, get. I, I do, but and I point out to this media sense thing because it's it's the one clearly obvious example in a situation in a in a in a story that i otherwise thought was really well executed but it just seems like um in the in the next gen it just it seems like the federation military the you know starfleet can do basically whatever it wants that's that's the thing that i find so interesting is that aside from a couple reporters that show up at the beginning of generations (laughs) i see no evidence of there being a media at all i i see that uh the only transmissions of any kind are coming from the government. So it is kind of interesting in that way that maybe you occasionally see an archaeologist or an artist working in a really nice studio somewhere, but you don't see a lot of Earth characters that aren't in the Federation. And I'll go you one further in that, uh, well, Battlestar Galactica, written by Ronald somebody who worked on Next Gen. Yeah, uh, fantastic stuff. Clearly he thought of that because... The, the concept of military versus civilian life is a huge theme. This was not yeah. something that they couldn't do. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when not just what they did in Next Gen, but some of the stuff they did besides, these are not untalented people. These are not really well, these are not people who don't understand their craft. That's not, that's not my argument. So mm-hmm. would it have been a better way to explain what this universe is uh, by showing the effect of the coming Borg invasion on the that Earth? That expensive, though. Yeah, that it is. But, I mean, just showing how people respond to it and saying, this is our utopia. How would a utopian society, rather than, you know, panicking and throwing chairs through windows and taking TV sets, how would an evolved, uh, humanistic, <laughs> intelligent, educated people who don't have to worry about scarcity, how would they respond to something that's essentially like, you know, the the German Blitz? Well, I think uh, if you were to, had watched Deep Space Nine, that was a very long, very long arc. When you had the Dominion Wars, there was a point in time where... Um, in answer to Mike's question, um, there was a, a plot in Deep Space Nine where um, they had found out that change things had been taking the form of high-level Federation officials and, uh, and and infiltrating Starfleet, essentially. And um, the reaction uh, on board Earth, because Cisco goes back to Earth to help deal with the threat, because he's the one who knows the most about the Dominion, um, where they post... Uh, Federation security guards with with uh, uh, rifles on every block, and of course, Cisco's dad in New at the restaurant in New Orleans is like, "This is not the this is not the place that we live in." Now, I can see if you're if you're extending this to your critique, like um, this is the naive liberal uh, liberals. Uh, 
expression where they want a quiet life for liberalism and they just want their their uh, reactionaries to go out and murder people to protect the quiet life for liberalism. Um, however, if you if you were at the question you were asking is how would society deal with the threat and the society they dealt with the threat was our pers- civil liberties say that we don't need people with guns protecting us we're, that we, we we believe that the society that we've created is stable enough that um, it will never be destroyed from without because uh, because we are so, we are harmonious now that of course completely throws away how that's actually possible right how it's possible to arrange that but I think that answers your question about how would a federation citizen deal with an existential threat and what what a reflect that has on their daily life that I, I'll go with I, I'm actually uh, I will agree with you on that. I think they did a pretty decent job with that storyline in DS9. I, I, I would have liked to see uh, more of that. And I think that they danced around it quite a bit with a couple characters, one of them being Ensign Rowe, who came on the show and yeah. kind of... It's, she was kind of like Scrappy-Doo was on Scooby-Doo. You know how there's these unspoken things behind the curtain on a show? Like with Scooby-Doo, it was that... It's just a guy in a suit. Why don't we just tackle him? And suddenly you inject a character into it who points his finger at that problem in the plot and goes, see right there? Why don't we just beat him up? And you don't have a good <laughs> argument against it. So Ensign Rowe really pointed her finger at a lot of stuff with the Federation is that there was always a sense on Star Trek that you wanted to treat the Federation like this benevolent entity and they don't want to ask any of these questions that Sam is talking about. Nobody wants to say that and suddenly you put this character in the show, Ensign Rowe, who's asking those questions and the show doesn't have very good answers. So what do you do? You get rid of that character. Yeah, she left. Uh, they, they basically yeah. said, ah, uh, look at her. She's uppity. Uh, she's going to start causing problems with our unassailable system. we got to get rid of her. Uh, uh, she joins the Maquis. Brilliant. Uh, great job, everyone. <laughs> yeah, the Maquis uh, was... It's like they would dance around it. A lot of times I think it was because they were they don't want to damage the franchise. Yeah. And I think that was something, maybe that's the difference, Sam. We were talking about uh, Battlestar. Uh, when Ronald D. Moore came on to Star Trek, he was dealing with this sacred cow. And yeah. it's sort of like mm-hmm. when a writer comes on to Superman, they have to treat Superman in a certain way because there's editors and corporate guys looking over your back that don't want to damage this property. This property has an identity. But with Battlestar, nobody gave a shit. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. And and you had this thing that he could come on and do radical things. It's sort of like, as a comic book fan, I know that if I read a series about Superman, there's very narrow parameters for what they want Superman to do. And occasionally they go outside of it, but it's treated like a big deal. However, if I'm reading a series about Ant-Man... They can they can do whatever they want. There's a freedom there. <laughs> Dude, I'm already in hater mode. Do you yeah. really got to bring Superman up now? Like, <laughs> we're on dangerous territory. But here. they can actually go the dictator route, I think, with Battlestar because they're not afraid of damaging that franchise because that franchise well, doesn't have a lot of and, value. And Battlestar Galactica was a political yeah. commentary on uh, post 9/11 America. Yeah. Uh, so, well, uh, well yeah. post I don't, and a lot of things is is my introduction to, to Battlestar Galactica was was uh, Bastille Day. It was the first season episode where they're 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 trying to assemble the quorum of twelve, and I get into it late because I'm sick and I'm channel surfing and getting into it, and I'm getting into this political debate that they're having. I don't know what channel I'm watching, and they're they're on that that uh, resort ship, so it looks like it's outside. Yeah. They're in yeah. bars. They're talking. There's some weird government that's like, what is this, some sort of alternate country? I don't, what's going on? And then they go through an airlock, and I realize there are robots in space. And I'm just like, hey, fantastic. Star Trek has always had this weird relationship with the topic of sex. Like, 
the series apparently almost didn't get picked up because of the pilot, the cage, which had the green skinned bikini chick who was a slave girl. So the network was a little weird about that, but it's kind of funny how the network seemed to sort of slowly change on that front. For much of the series, you had a lot of female characters either wearing short skirts or even in starting in the next generation, a cat suit. And yet there was this weird platonic feeling throughout all of it. And I think it kind of got bigger and amped up with, of course, uh, Seven of Nine in uh, Voyager. And the place where it got really weird, which was on Enterprise. So on Enterprise, you basically had away team missions. And instead of just beaming up and going back to work, you went into a decontamination chamber where two attractive people in their underwear would rub lotion on each other <laughs> and basically throw a bunch of plot exposition at you while doing so. <laughs> it, it was like the weird, it was like going to a tech seminar, except people were giving each other back massages. <laughs> the, hev- the chamber of heavy petting. So, yeah. You came away with this feeling like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this scene. It's trying to titillate me, but I'm like, oh, this is important exposition. So, <laughs> what is what gives with with the topic of Star Trek and sex? Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, no. That was uh, that was the whole point of the decontamination chamber. Was was uh, was we need to sexy this show up a little bit because uh, we're all running around in identical uh, sexless overalls, and it was it was ridiculously desexualized. Uh, the show was in that sense, and they they needed to inject a little bit of sexiness because you had you had, you had these actresses who were were also models, and and these actors who were incredibly good shape, you know, great looking guys. I mean, there are whole websites out there dedicated to Connor Turnier getting down to his skivvies, but uh, they, they needed to have these bits in the show, or you were going to lose a lot of the audience, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, if you if you were just doing dry exposition without having them uh, standing around in this chamber, uh, mostly naked, and rubbing each other down with uh, with decontamination gel for a few minutes, just, just, you know, saying those things on the bridge would have been boring, and people would be falling asleep. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's so weird, is that they were unsexy, sexy scenes, on Star Trek Enterprise, it's it's kind of it's kind of weird. Um, I don't know what do you what's your guys' take on this. Uh, I, it's it's hard to say because obviously for that was a big draw for the original series was um you had um in the primetime hour you had like the the models the actresses that had like so little little clothing on like even less than bikini type clothing and for the 60s that was still pretty racy and then of course the first couple uh seasons of next of next gen were that way um i think what's interesting enough i think it got desexualized the further along it went and there was a notoriously there was a deep space nine episode where they go to risa and then like there is this points to your question exactly there are these prudes they're basically the 24th century equivalent of like uh christian uh, evangelical conservatives who come to risa and who are like we're gonna shut down risa because you're full of sin basically is the plot and and there's but the thing is is that the episode is they came from uh planet joy kill i believe (laughs) the the the, uh the episode is terrible and it's because it's almost entirely devoid of sex like there is very little actual skin that goes on um there are very little actually even references to having intercourse even though risa is the place where you basically go you take a statue set it down by the pool and then some somebody comes and gives you a blowjob or something i don't know what happens it's right it's risa we just assume yeah this that's, is, uh, that's what happens when you when you display your horgon the hor- yes the horda the horda the horda the horgon horgon of the thing you'd get in trouble <laughs> waving your horgon <laughs> you display that too yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, Risa's awesome. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, it, 
it got it got desexualized, and and you, you the right point of uh, mentioning that they replaced Cass with uh, Seven of Nine on Voyager as the as the, also the way to sex it up. And uh, <coughs> to be honest, if you look at if you look at uh, covers for sci-fi novels from the forties, fifties, and sixties, you'll see the same you'll see the same thing where it was like put uh, get a guy with a laser gun and then a girl in like a bikini, like and, you know this being ravished or something. Um, but for Star Trek, I think. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it just became a more conservative show as it went along, as opposed to a as opposed to a more progressive one. And um, it, there was also got the sense that it was a family show too. I mean, yeah. I think Star Trek became more of a family show as it went along. I really do. It tried to serve many masters, and it ended up becoming kind of schizophrenic. I think. Um, I mean, a lot of people talk about how Star Trek is uh, is creepsters or whatever, and um, I, I honestly think that sexuality in Star Trek is sort of a microcosm of sexuality in the entire science fiction field. Is it's it's, uh, it's a little bit weird. They treat it like a volatile chemical. They don't know. <laughs> they don't really. You know, they they put it in weird places. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Um, and uh, you know, I think uh, I think they hit more than they missed when they sometimes you know sometimes sometimes not no actually i think they miss more than they hit i lie um but um i also think that that that's i i don't know that i can blame star trek for that because i think that's sort of a limitation of te- television i think Battlestar galactica which apparently is my go-to show this week um really really manages to solve that problem by just having the characters fuck a lot which is something you can do <laughs> in, in in 2010 or whatever and something you right. can't do in 1963 and i recognize that that's uh, yeah. just an, the evolution of the medium yeah, that okay. So it's time for the big finale. We're talking about high point, low point. Let's talk about high point. What is the high point of Star Trek? When is it at its best? Well, I would say um, in October 26th, 1991 is when Gene Roddenberry died, and that was when they're actually in production on season four of TNG and in pre production of Star Trek VI, which was by all rights a pretty incredible movie, not just for Star Trek fans, but a good movie in general. Um, in November, they aired Uni- uh, Unification. That was the two-part episode featuring Leonard Nimoy, the bridge, uh, uh, in a plot about reunification of Vulcan and Romulus. Um, that show was the highest-rated Star Trek show ever at that point. In fact, it had 14.5 million viewers, I think. It beat out 60 Minutes, Monday Night Football, Roseanne, and Cheers in that week. And this is, mind you, this is a syndicated show, so this is not a show that has the marketing support from a network who who plugs the whole the over a whole week. Um, so the strength of that season and the strength of that episode, which is by by all rights a great episode, um, uh, just for the way it bridges old and new, and also the way it develops very richly the universe which they're in. They actually, uh, from the success success of that season, they started spawning the the spinoffs, Deep Space Nine. And uh, and then what came afterwards? I think that for for me, that's the high point when they knew it was something that had legs, it had life, and it could be more popular than football. That's that's a good one. So, Chris, high point. Uh, the single best thing ever in Star Trek uh, in the Star Trek universe, uh, Galaxy Quest. Hands <laughs> <laughs> down, down, my favorite Star Trek movie. No. Uh, in, in the really real world of Star Trek, I, I, you, you, pick, you mentioned my favorite thing, uh, Star Trek VI. Uh, you not only had uh, some uh, a great seasoned actor as your as your primary villain, you had Christopher Plummer in there doing doing what Christopher Plummer does best, being an amazing amazing actor, and, and, and hamming it up in a way that was still 
story and you had a great kind of end for uh, for, for what we all knew was going to be the end of the original series uh, movies uh, franchise, you had a great kind of capper. I felt like we were able to say goodbye to everybody in a way that, that, that felt right, that felt natural, uh, and my own uh, ridiculous man crush, Christian Slater. <laughs> that's right he was yeah, yeah, he had like a two, two second lines, cameo was on screen for less than a minute but had the single longest character name in the entire credits so if you watch the credit roll his character Excelsior Communications Officer Officer is the longest name in the entire credits and I said <laughs> that's right you better respect my man I almost want to change my worst and talk about Star Trek 6 because I just cannot agree I, I, I think I think Christopher Plummer actually chews the nacelles off the Enterprise at some point. I think there were good. I think there were good <laughs> points in it, but I think it was a hammy story. It was maudlin because they knew it was the end of the I, and the the Cold War. The, the Cold War metaphor was really overwrought. But anyway, all right. I I, I have to get out of my negative thing. Con. <laughs> Star Trek Two was a great movie, not just because yeah. it was it it got to the maritime roots of. I love I'm sorry I love spaceships I'm weird about spaceships I get that and it was I think it was the it was the best movie that you know it it had really good uh, the, the the ship fight combat was really good um, it was it was really suspenseful it had the it had the science fiction MacGuffin um, it was a very positive story and it referenced and and it worked as well as a singular movie, as a movie yeah. with without context to the rest of Star Trek. But if you saw the the uh, episode with Khan, the the Crazy. evil dictator of Asia from 1996, um, <laughs> if you saw it, it made the movie so much better. Is is that is that is just a fantastic movie, beginning to end. It's it's got action, it's got suspense, it's got these great scenes where they're you know the the scene where the thing I said where it was ridiculous where they're getting to the photon torpedo ready and I sort of made fun of it. That's uncharitable. Yeah. That's actually a really great scene. Okay, the music in the background sounds like uh, Deutschland, 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 Uber Alles to me a little bit if you listen to it. <laughs> but it's still a really good scene. It puts everything together. Um, you show, you see Kirk really caring about his crew, really caring about people at sort of a high point in his career. Uh, it's it's a fantastic movie. I'm Actually, if my high point, I'm going to go to the exact same place that uh, Sam just did with Star Trek 2. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best cases that you can make for a movie where you don't have it written by fans. As much as fans tend to write things, the reason fan fiction sucks so much is it has so much wish fulfillment written all over it. Mary Sue. It's a, it's the Mary Sue. It said, oh, I wish these characters would really get together. And I think in the end, fans don't want that. As much as they want it, they don't really want every single wish to be fulfilled. And this was a movie written by somebody who came to Star Trek from a fresh place, much the way I think the original writers did. It was an incredibly tight script. All the plot elements involved uh, death, birth, rebirth, growing old, um, finding your own purpose, things like that. You know, the Kobayashi Maru metaphor is all over that movie. People uh, coming to grips with the fact that they've made mistakes in the past and their past coming to live with them and them not being the young person that they used to be and wondering if they're still up for this. The movie was basically Kirk's midlife crisis. But But in the terms of the movie, it wasn't even the middle. Um, That's my favorite Star (laughs) Trek movie. Um, I think it's just a great, like Sam said, it's a great movie, period. And it's the Star Trek movie I would show to non-Star Trek fans. So here comes the painful part. Time to get into the worst. What is the worst 
the low point of Star Trek. What is the low point? Well, uh, I you know I think it's cliche to say Enterprise. I think it's totally cliche because uh, I think it I think it had already had already been coasting. It had, been, had no brakes, and the the uh, the truck was rolling down the hill with no brakes already. I would say for me the low point was the nexus of in Star Trek Insurrection and Star Trek Nemesis, where you. Uh, after you had established that you could make a lot of money at the box office with an action Star Trek movie like First Contact, which was by all rights a very fun movie, very good. It had enough actual had enough actual references to what happened and enough new surprises to make you really, really happy about uh, Star Trek The Next Generation cast still being alive. Then you move to Insurrection and then to Nemesis where stupid action movie plots where you don't care about, where the actors aren't behaving like you, you don't care about them anymore. You don't do not care about the villains that they create and then by the end of nemesis they create a spoiler alert data's death um they basically rewrite star trek 2 is what they do they They create data's death to be spock's death to create some sort of i don't know some sort of uh exciting bit that star trek fan will make star trek fans really emotional um and then they and in doing that they made they did such a shitty job that they destroyed the tn uh, any possibility of tng living on in any way other than a book all right uh, chris What's the bottom of the barrel for Star Trek? Uh, well, it's true that Nemesis was an absolute train wreck from beginning to end. Uh, uh, the, the worst thing of it all is uh, Brent Spiner singing. <laughs> Anytime he sings, worst thing ever. <laughs> uh, I love Brent Spiner. He's a very, very funny man, very talented actor. But uh, no, no, seriously, uh, yeah, Nemesis was the worst. Uh, I, I don't think we can emphasize enough that it was just a, a sad toothless rewrite of star trek 2 and, and and everything that they did in the movie and then down down to even down to the bit at the end where where they had to yeah. wait for the big scary weapon to uh, to power up and they were running out of time to escape i mean it's the same movie uh, i was just very sad and disgruntled that this was our send-off to the tng cast yeah. and that uh, and that it was a, a giant obnoxious turd in which uh, brent spiner sings Sam, what oh is the, to cap this thing off. What is the worst of Star Trek? You have to pick just you, you can't one. S- you can't say all of it. No, and, <laughs> and I won't. I'm not. I have to admit, I, I came into this not being an anti fan of Star Trek, but sort of Star Trek's loyal opposition. Um, is I I, I I wanted to say everything after DS9, but I couldn't. Uh, I really wanted to say Data because I think Data is a low rent Spock. And while Brent Spiner, I think, is a talented actor, uh, the Data character was just overused and destroyed and wiped wiped all over everything in a way that Spock wasn't. And I think it was a bad... I I think it really... You know, I don't know. But I'm going to get meta, and I'm going to say that the worst thing about Star Trek is its effect on American science fiction, and specifically American science fiction television, is that for a whole bunch of years, the only movies you could really get made, the only TV shows that you could really get attention for in, in the U.S., were Wars and Trek, Wars and Trek, Wars and Trek. Mm. And I think in television, I think that was really Trek's fault. I am happy to say in 2012, we are on the other side of that hill. There is a lot of really good science fiction coming out every year. and um, But for a while, for someone who, who has a love of science fiction as an entire genre, I mean, I am ridiculously in love with science fiction. Um, I really wanted to see other things. I wanted to see... Uh, I didn't want to see Klingons every day. I, I don't care if they just spray painted Klingons and made them more like the Roman Empire and called them Cardassians. I wanted to see, uh, I wanted to see Hyperion. I wanted to see, hmm. 
I wanted to see what eventually I wanted something like Battlestar Galactica. And I, I when I say they just sort of they, they sort of took Hill Street Blues and put it in space, that for me is a compliment. I wanted to see uh I you know, I, I wanted to see stuff like Firefly. And I and I thought I for a long time um, I it just seemed like the only thing you can get on television, especially to hear uh, J. Michael Straczynski talk, is the only thing you you could really get people's attention for was Trek. And it there's a lot of wonderful science fiction out there. The science fiction has a really positive effect on on society. I think in America. And when we keep it out of when we have the only thing being this corpse of a, of a storyline, this corpse of a of a of a of a show. With uh, with you know everything with Voyager and Enterprise and etc., uh, we're you're really blocking. There's a lot of stories that need to be told that I think really could really use a visual approach to the storytelling that Star Trek is preventing. And uh, this used to this used to burn me like nothing else. I I'm on the other side of it because there's good, but I used to really hate Star Trek because of that. Nowadays, it's a different situation, and I'm really glad to be here. Well, if I can have a 10 second rebuttal. It's because of Star Trek The Next Generation that Ronald D. Moore was able to make Battlestar Galactica. I don't deny that. I don't. I think for me, getting into what I think is the low point, I'm going to say the stagnation of Star Trek now the end. And I think Berman and Braga is how I'm going to frame this. Fuck those guys. Those guys (laughs) were so afraid of any kind of change that even when they tried to do something new and different with Enterprise, they didn't want to do something new and different with Enterprise. Right. They consistently tried to bring back the Borg and the Ferengi and, hey, you recognize these guys too? Mm. Hey, hey, we're going to put them on the show, but we're going to come up with this really ham-fisted idea for how they can escape and we never find out they're called Ferengi and ah oh, fuck it I don't I, that was, I guess that wasn't that important let's not look into that later because it's not like another ship is going to run it, into these guys it, it occurred to me that I could just come in here and talk about Berman and Braga for just the whole time and I I would I would win the debate just by doing that but I know you I know you I know you guys aren't going to disagree with me and that'd be cheap so I'm going to I'm going to be honest. You know, we, we haven't even mentioned Michael Piller's name at all in this. So Michael Piller, just as an addendum to my low point, um, he wrote a whole book about why they fucked him over on Insurrection. So it wasn't yeah. his intention to, to make the schlocky piece of crap that was so bad that it stopped people going to the movies to see Star Trek in the theater. Um, he wrote a whole book about how he got undermined. And it's, it's unpublished, actually. It got leaked on the... You can get it as a PDF. Um, so Michael Piller, di- he died not too long ago, I think a couple oh, years ago. Oh, no yeah, kidding. He died a couple years ago. Um, oh, but uh, I think Michael Piller was the guy who carried the torch for Gene Roddenberry after he died in 91. And then, of course, Michael Piller uh, exited stage left and let Berman and Braga um, carry it on. And hence, part of a lot of our complaints about the whole franchise. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's going to be the show. I want to thank you guys for coming here again, joining us. Uh, Casey Doran from Transmit Receive. Thanks, Mike. Sam Mulvey from Ask an Atheist. See you tomorrow. And my good friend from work, Chris Walker, <laughs> from the Backroom <laughs> Comics Podcast. Excellent. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you guys. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our audio engineer was Rich Lyons. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.